0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome, I'm happy to have you here, and please know that you are welcome regardless of your race, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available, the link is in the show notes. If you enjoy the show and want to have me do some voice work for you, please feel free to email me. I'm a voice actor and audiobook narrator, and I'd love to help you out with any of your projects, big or small. Not much to talk about this week, so we're going to jump straight into the story. Thank you so much for listening. The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop Chapter 1 It is only within the last few years that most people have stopped thinking of the West as a new land. I suppose the idea gained ground because our own especial civilization happens to be new there, but nowadays explorers are digging beneath the surface and bringing up whole chapters of life that rose and fell among these plains and mountains before recorded history began. We think nothing of a Pueblo village 2,500 years old, and it hardly jolts us when archaeologists put the sub culture of Mexico back to 17,000 or 18,000 BC. We hear rumors of still older things, too, of primitive man contemporaneous with extinct animals and known today only through a few fragmentary bones and artifacts, so that the idea of newness is fading out pretty rapidly. Europeans usually catch the sense of immemorial ancientness and deep deposits from successive life streams better than we do. Only a couple of years ago, a British author spoke of Arizona as a moon-dim region, very lovely in its way and stark and old, an ancient lonely land. Yet, I believe I have a deeper sense of the stupefying, almost horrible ancientness of the West than any European. It all comes from an incident that happened in 1928, an incident which I'd greatly like to dismiss as three-quarters hallucination, but which has left such a frightfully firm impression on my memory that I can't put it off very easily. It was in Oklahoma where my work as an American Indian ethnologist constantly takes me, and where I had come upon some devilishly strange and disconcerting matters before. Make no mistake, Oklahoma is a lot more than a mere pioneers and promoters frontier. There are old, old tribes with old, old memories there, and when the tom-toms beat ceaselessly over brooding plains in the autumn, the spirits of men are brought dangerously close to primal whispered things. I am white and eastern enough myself, but anybody is welcome to know that the rites of Yig, father of snakes, can get a real shudder out of me any day. I have heard and seen too much to be sophisticated in such matters, And so it is with this incident of 1928. I'd like to laugh it off, but I can't. I had gone into Oklahoma to track down and correlate one of the many ghost tales which were current among the white settlers, but which had strong Indian corroboration and, I felt sure, an ultimate Indian source. They were very curious, these open-air ghost tales, and though they sounded flat and prosaic in the mouths of the white people— they had earmarks of linkage with some of the richest and obscurest phases of native mythology. All of them were woven around the vast, lonely, artificial-looking mounds in the western part of the state, and all of them involved apparitions of exceedingly strange aspect and equipment. The commonest, and among the oldest, became quite famous in 1892, when a government marshal named John Willis went into the mound region after horse thieves, and came out with a wild yarn of nocturnal cavalry horses in the air between great armies of invisible specters, battles that involved the rush of hooves and feet, the thud of blows, the clank of metal on metal, the muffled cries of warriors, and the fall of human and equine bodies. These things happened by moonlight and frightened his horse as well as himself. The sounds persisted an hour at a time, vivid, but subdued as if brought from a distance by a wind and unaccompanied by any glimpse of the armies themselves. Later on, Willis learned that the seat of the sounds was a notoriously haunted spot shunned by settlers and Indians alike. Many had seen, or half-seen, the warring horsemen in the sky and had furnished dim, ambiguous descriptions. The settlers described the ghostly fighters as Indians, though of no familiar tribe, and having the most singular costumes and weapons. They even went so far as to say that they could not be sure the horses were really horses. The Indians, on the other hand, did not seem to claim the specters as kinsfolk. They referred to them as those people, the old people, or they who dwell below, and appeared to hold them in too great a frightened veneration to talk much about them. No ethnologist had been able to pin any tale-teller down to a specific description of the beings, and apparently nobody had ever had a very clear look at them. The Indians had one or two old proverbs about these phenomena, saying that men very old make very big spirit, not so old, not so big, older than all time, then spirit, he so big, he near flesh. Those old people and spirits, they mix up, get all the same. Now, all of this, of course is old stuff to an ethnologist, of a piece with the persistent legends of rich hidden cities and buried races which abound among the Pueblo and Plains Indians, and which lured Coronado centuries ago on his vain search for the fabled Quivira. What took me into western Oklahoma was something far more definite and tangible, a local and distinctive tale which, though really old, was wholly new to the outside world of research, and which involved the first clear descriptions of the ghosts which it treated of. There was an added thrill in the fact that it came from the remote town of Binger in Caddo County, a place I had long known as the scene of a very terrible and partly inexplicable occurrence connected with the snake-god myth. The tale, outwardly, was an extremely naive and simple one, and centered in a huge lone mound or small hill that rose above the plain, "'about a third of a mile west of the village. "'A mound which some thought a product of nature, "'but which others believed to be a burial place "'or ceremonial dais constructed by prehistoric tribes. "'This mound, the villagers said, "'was constantly haunted by two Indian figures "'which appeared in alternation. "'An old man who paced back and forth along the top "'from dawn till dusk, regardless of the weather "'and with only brief intervals of disappearance.' And a squaw who took his place at night with a blue flamed torch that glimmered quite continuously till morning. When the moon was bright, the squaw's peculiar figure could be seen fairly plainly, and over half the villagers agreed that the apparition was headless. Local opinion was divided as to the motives and relative ghostliness of the two visions. Some held that the man was not a ghost at all but a living Indian who had killed and beheaded a squaw for gold and buried her somewhere on the mound. According to these theorists, he was pacing the eminence through sheer remorse, bound by the spirit of his victim which took visible shape after dark. But both man and woman were ghosts, the man having killed the squaw and himself as well at some very distant period. These and minor variant versions seem to have been current ever since the settlement of the Wichita County in 1889 And were, I was told, sustained to an astonishing degree by still existing phenomena which anyone might observe for himself. Not many ghost tales offer such free and open proof, and I was very eager to see what bizarre wonders might be lurking in this small, obscure village so far from the beaten path of crowds and from the ruthless searchlight of scientific knowledge. So, in the late summer of nineteen twenty eight, I took a train for Binger and brooded on strange mysteries as the cars rattled timidly along their single track through a lonelier and lonelier landscape. Binger is a modest cluster of frame houses and stores in the midst of a flat, windy region full of clouds of red dust. There are about 500 inhabitants besides the Indians on a neighboring reservation, the principal occupation seeming to be agriculture. The soil is decently fertile— and the oil boom has not reached this part of the state. My train drew in at twilight, and I felt rather lost and uneasy, cut off from wholesome and everyday things, as it puffed away to the southward without me. The station platform was filled with curious loafers, all of whom seemed eager to direct me when I asked for the man to whom I had letters of introduction. I was ushered along a commonplace main street, whose rutted surface was red with the sandstone soil of the country, and finally delivered at the door of my prospective host. Those who had arranged things for me had done well, for Mr. Compton was a man of high intelligence and local responsibility, while his mother, who lived with him and was familiarly known as Grandma Compton, was one of the first pioneer generation, and a veritable mine of anecdote and folklore. That evening, the Comptons summed up for me all the legends current among the villagers, proving that the phenomenon I had come to study— was indeed a baffling and important one. The ghosts, it seems, were accepted almost as a matter of course by everyone in Binger. Two generations had been born and grown up within sight of that queer, lone tumulus and its restless figures. The neighborhood of the mound was naturally feared and shunned, so that the village and the farms had not spread toward it in all four decades of settlement. Yet venturesome individuals had several times visited it. Some had come back to report that they saw no ghosts at all when they neared the dreaded hill, that somehow the lone sentinel had stepped out of sight before they reached the spot, leaving them free to climb the steep slope and explore the vast summit. There was nothing up there, they said, merely a rough expanse of underbrush. Where the Indian watcher could have vanished to, they had no idea. He must, they reflected, have descended the slope and somehow managed to escape unseen along the plain although there was no convenient cover within sight. At any rate, there did not appear to be any opening into the mound, a conclusion which was reached after considerable exploration of the shrubbery and tall grass on all sides. In a few cases, some of the more sensitive searchers declared that they felt a sort of invisible restraining presence, but they could describe nothing more definite than that. It was simply as if the air thickened against them in the direction they wished to move, it is needless to mention that all these daring surveys were conducted by day. Nothing in the universe could have induced any human being, white or red, to approach that sinister elevation after dark, and indeed no Indian would have thought of going near it even in the brightest sunlight. But it was not from the tales of these sane, observant seekers that the chief terror of the Ghost Mound sprang. Indeed, had their experience been typical, the phenomenon would have balked far less prominently in the local legendary. The most evil thing was the fact that many other seekers had come back strangely impaired in mind and body, or had not come back at all. The first of these cases had occurred in 1891 when a young man named Heaton had gone with a shovel to see what hidden secrets he could unearth. He had heard curious tales from the Indians and had laughed at the barren report of another youth who had been out to the mound and had found nothing. Heaton had watched the mound with a spyglass from the village while the other youth made his trip, and as the explorer neared the spot, he saw the sentinel Indian walk deliberately down into the tumulus as if a trap door and staircase existed on the top. The other youth had not noticed how the Indian disappeared, but had merely found him gone upon arriving at the mound. When Heaton made his own trip, he resolved to get to the bottom of the mystery, and watchers from the village saw him hacking diligently at the shrubbery atop the mound. Then they saw his figure melt slowly into invisibility, not to reappear for long hours till after the dusk drew on and the torch of the headless squaw glimmered ghoulishly on the distant elevation. About two hours after nightfall, he staggered into the village minus his spade and other belongings and burst into a shrieking monologue of disconnected ravings. He howled of shocking abysses and monsters, of terrible carvings and statues, "'of inhuman captors and grotesque tortures, "'and of other fantastic abnormalities "'too complex and chimerical even to remember. "'Old, old, old!' he would moan over and over again. "'Great God, they're older than the Earth "'and came here from somewhere else. "'They know what you think "'and make you know what they think. "'They're half man, half ghost. "'Cross the line, melt, and take shape again, "'getting more and more so.' Yet we're all descended from them in the beginning. Children of Tulu, everything made of gold. Monstrous animals, half-human, dead slaves. Madness. Yeah, shub that white man. Oh my god, what they did to him. Heaton was the village idiot for about eight years, after which he died in an epileptic fit. Since his ordeal, there had been two more cases of mound madness and eight of total disappearance. Immediately after Heaton's mad return, three desperate and determined men had gone out to the lone hill together, heavily armed and with spades and pickaxes. Watching villagers saw the Indian ghost melt away as the explorers drew near, and afterwards saw the men climb the mound and begin scouting around through the underbrush. All at once, they faded into nothingness and were never seen again. One watcher, with an especially powerful telescope, thought he saw other forms dimly materialize beside the hapless men and drag them down into the mound, but this account remains uncorroborated. It is needless to say that no searching party went out after the lost ones, and that for many years the mound was wholly unvisited. Only when the incidents of 1891 were largely forgotten did anybody dare to think of further explorations. Then, about 1910, a fellow too young to recall the old horrors made a trip to the shun spot and found nothing at all. By 1915, the acute dread and wild legendry of 91 had largely faded into the commonplace and unimaginative ghost tales at present surviving. That is, had so faded among the white people. On the nearby reservation were old Indians who thought much and kept their own counsel, About this time, a second wave of active curiosity and adventuring developed, and several bold searchers made the trip to the mound and returned. Then came a trip of two eastern visitors with spades and other apparatus, a pair of amateur archaeologists connected with a small college who had been making studies among the Indians. No one watched this trip from the village, but they never came back. The searching party that went out after them, among whom was my host Clyde Compton, Found nothing whatsoever amiss at the mound. The next trip was the solitary venture of old Captain Lawton, a grizzled pioneer who had helped to open up the region in 1889, but who had never been there since. He had recalled the mound and its fascination all through the years, and being now in comfortable retirement, resolved to have a try at solving the ancient riddle. Long familiarity with Indian myth had given him ideas rather stranger than those of the simple villagers. And he had made preparations for some extensive delving. He ascended the mound on the morning of Thursday, May eleventh, nineteen sixteen. Watched through spyglasses by more than twenty people in the village and on the adjacent plain. His disappearance was very sudden and occurred as he was hacking at the shrubbery with a brush cutter. No one could say more than that he was there one moment and absent the next. For over a week, no tidings of him reached Binger, and then, in the middle of the night there dragged itself into the village, the object about which dispute still rages. It said it was, or had been, Captain Lawton, but it was definitely younger, by as much as forty years, than the old man who had climbed the mound. Its hair was jet black, and its face, now distorted with nameless fright, free from wrinkles. But it did remind Grandma Compton most uncannily of the captain as he had looked back in eighty-nine, its feet were cut off neatly at the ankles, and the stumps were smoothly healed to an extent almost incredible if the being really were the man who had walked upright a week before. It babbled of incomprehensible things and kept repeating the name George Lawton, George E. Lawton, as if trying to reassure itself of its own identity. The things it babbled of, Grandma Compton thought, were curiously like the hallucinations of poor young Heaton in '91. "'though there were minor differences. "'The blue light, the blue light,' muttered the object.
1: "'Always down there, before there were any living things. "'Older than the dinosaurs. "'Always the same, only weaker, never death. "'Brooding and brooding and brooding. "'The same people, half man and half gas. "'The dead that walk and work. "'Oh, those beasts!' Those half inhuman unicorns. Houses and cities of gold. Old, 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 older than time. Came down from the stars. Great Tulu, Azathoth, Nyarlat Hotep. Waitin', waitin'.
0: The object died before dawn. Of course, there was an investigation, and the Indians at the reservation were grilled unmercifully. But they knew nothing, and had nothing to say. At least, none of them had anything to say except Old Grey Eagle, a Wichita chieftain whose more than a century of age put him above common fears. He alone deigned to grunt some advice. "'You let him alone, white man.
1: No good, those people. All under here, all under there. Them old ones. Yig, big father of snakes, he there.' Yig is Yig. Tarawa, big father of men, he there. Tarawa is Tarawa. No die, no get old. Just same like air. Just live and wait. One time they come out here, live and fight. Build them dirt teepee. Bring up gold. They got plenty. Go off and make new lodges. Me them, you them. Then big waters come, all change. Nobody come out, let nobody in. Get in, no get out. You let them lone you have no bad medicine. Red man no, he no get catch. White man metal, he no come back. Keep way, little hills, no good. Gray eagle say this.
0: If Joe Norton and Rance Wheelock had taken the old chief's advice, they would probably be here today. But they didn't. They were great readers and materialists and feared nothing in heaven or earth, and they thought that some Indian friends had a secret headquarters inside the mound. They had been to the mound before, and now they went again to avenge old Captain Lawton, boasting that they'd do it if they had to tear the mound down altogether. Clyde Compton watched them with a pair of prism binoculars and saw them round the base of the sinister hill. Evidently, they meant to survey their territory very gradually and minutely. Minutes passed, and they did not reappear. Nor were they ever seen again. Once more, the mound was a thing of panic fright, and only the excitement of the great war served to restore it to the farther background of Binger folklore. It was unvisited from 1916 to 1919, and would have remained so but for the daredevil tree of some of the youths back from service in France. From 1919 to 1920, however, there was a veritable epidemic of mound visiting among the prematurely hardened young veterans, an epidemic that waxed as one youth after another returned unhurt and contemptuous. By 1920, so short is human memory, the mound was almost a joke and the tame story of the murdered squaw began to displace darker whispers on everybody's tongues. Then two reckless young brothers, the especially unimaginative and hard-boiled clay boys, decided to go and dig up the buried squaw and the gold for which the old Indian had murdered her. They went out on a September afternoon, about the time the Indian tom-toms began their incessant annual beating over the flat, red, dusty plains. Nobody watched them, and their parents did not become worried at their non-return for several hours. Then came an alarm and a searching party, and another resignation to the mystery of silence and doubt. But one of them came back after all. It was Ed, the elder, and his straw-colored hair and beard had turned an albino white for two inches from the roots. On his forehead was a queer scar like a branded hieroglyph. Three months after he and his brother Walker had vanished, he skulked into his house at night, wearing nothing but a queerly-patterned blanket which he thrust into the fire as soon as he had got into a suit of his own clothes. He had told his parents that he and Walker had been captured by some strange Indians, not Wichita's or Cotto's, and held prisoners somewhere toward the west. Walker had died under torture, but he himself had managed to escape at a high cost. The experience had been particularly terrible, and he could not talk about it just then. He must rest, and anyway it would do no good to give an alarm and try to find and punish the Indians. They were not of a sort that could be caught or punished, and it was especially important for the good of Binger, for the good of the world, that they be not pursued into their secret lair. As a matter of fact, they were not altogether what one could call real Indians. He would explain about that later. Meanwhile, he must rest. Better not to rouse the village with the news of his return. He would go upstairs and sleep. Before he climbed the rickety flight to his room, he took a pad and pencil from the living room table and an automatic pistol from his father's desk drawer. Three hours later, the shot rang out. Ed Clay had put a bullet neatly through his temples with a pistol clutched in his left hand, leaving a sparsely written sheet of paper on the rickety table near his bed. He had, it later appeared, from the whittled pencil stub and stove full of charred paper, originally written much more, but had finally decided not to tell what he knew beyond vague hints. The surviving fragment was only a mad warning scrawled in a curiously backhanded script, the ravings of a mind obviously deranged by hardships, and it read thus, "'rather surprisingly for the utterance of one "'who had always been stolid and matter-of-fact. "'For God's sake, never go near that mound. "'It's part of some kind of world so devilish and old "'it cannot be spoke about. "'Me and Walker went and was took into the thing "'and just melted at times and made up again, "'and the whole world outside is helpless "'alongside of what they can do. "'They will live forever, young as they like, "'and you can't tell they're really managers, ghostesses, "'and what they do can't be spoke about. "'And this is only one entrance. "'You can't tell how big the whole thing is.' After what we've seen, I don't want to live anymore, France with nothing besides this, and see what people always keep away, oh God, they would if they see poor Walker like he was in the end. Yours truly, Ed Clay. At the autopsy, it was found that all of young Clay's organs were transposed from right to left within his body, as if he had been turned inside out. Whether they had always been so, no one could say at the time, but it was later learned from army records that Ed had been perfectly normal when mustered out of the service in May 1919. Whether there was a mistake somewhere, or whether some unprecedented metamorphosis had indeed occurred, is still an unsettled question, as is also the origin of the hieroglyph-like scar on the forehead. That was the end of the explorations of the mound. In the eight intervening years, no one had been near the place, and few indeed had even cared to level a spyglass at it. From time to time, people continued to glance nervously at the lone hill as it rose starkly from the plain against the western sky, and to shudder at the small dark speck that paraded by day, and the glimmering will-o'-the-wisp that danced by night. The thing was accepted at face value as a mystery not to be probed, and by common consent the village shunned the subject. It was, after all, quite easy to avoid the hill, for space was unlimited in every direction, and community life always follows beaten trails. The mound side of the village was simply kept trailless, as if it had been water or swampland or desert. And it is a curious commentary on the stolidity and imaginative sterility of the human animal that the whispers with which children and strangers were warned away from the mound quickly sank once more into the flat tail of a murderous Indian ghost and his squaw victim. Only the tribesmen on the reservation, and thoughtful old-timers like Grandma Compton, remembered the overtones of unholy vistas and deep cosmic menace, which clustered around the ravings of those who had come back changed and shattered. It was very late, and Grandma Compton had long since gone upstairs to bed, when Clyde finished telling me this. I hardly knew what to think of the frightful puzzle, yet rebelled at any notion to conflict with sane materialism. What influence had brought madness or the impulse of flight and wandering to so many who had visited the mound? Though vastly impressed, I was spurred on rather than deterred. Surely I must get to the bottom of this matter, as well I might if I kept a cool head and an unbroken determination. Compton saw my mood and shook his head worriedly, Then he motioned me to follow him outdoors. We stepped from the frame house to the quiet side street or lane, and walked a few paces in the light of a waning August moon to where the houses were thinner. The half-moon was still low and had not blotted many stars from the sky, so that I could see not only the westering gleams of Altair and Vega, but the mystic shimmering of the Milky Way as I looked out over the vast expanse of earth and sky in the direction that Compton pointed. Then, all at once, I saw a spark that was not a star, a bluish spark that moved and glimmered against the Milky Way near the horizon, and that seemed in a vague way more evil and malevolent than anything in the vault above. In another moment, it was clear that this spark came from the top of a long-distant rise in the outspread and faintly-litten plain, and I turned to Compton with a question. Yeah, he answered. It's the blue ghost light, and that is the mound. There's not a night in history that we haven't seen it, not a living soul in Binger that would walk out over that plane toward it. It's bad business, young man, and if you're wise, you'll let it rest where it is. Better call your search off, son, and tackle some of the other engine legends around here. We've plenty to keep you busy, heaven knows. And that was part one of The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop. Thank you to everyone who supports the show and has helped me out with my computer repairs this week. I should be getting my computer back in the next couple of days, so hopefully I'll be back to normal soon. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Weird Tales Podcast. This weekend, the first chapter of the first narrative of the second period of The Moonstone released and it features my wife doing the reading. That's available to the $10 tier patrons, and it comes with the outtakes reel, and if you know me and my wife, the outtakes are definitely worth listening to. Thank you so much, Ryan Patrick. Ineptus Astartes, thank you. Matthias Hansen, thank you. Mark Vincette, thank you so much. Eric Braun, thank you for your support. Please feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. Go and get vaccinated if you haven't already, wear a mask whether you have or not, punch a racist in the face, you know, just for funsies. And always remember, the journey comes before the destination. When you fall, and you will fall, if you stop, then the failure becomes your destination. Pick yourself up and continue on. The most important step any person can take is always the next one. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.